headline for the day of the body of Christ. I'm really talking about two things, but they're connected. We've seen so far in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Nine things Paul mentions there, gifts of the Holy Spirit. The things of the Spirit, he calls them there. It doesn't use the word gifts actually in the original. And the Holy Spirit gives those individually and repeatedly. Every word of prophecy, every word of knowledge, every word of wisdom, every healing is a gift. Nobody has the word of knowledge except in the moment that God's given them one. All right? These things are not resident. They don't, they, you don't take on an identity. I'm the one with that. No, you're the one God uses with those gift, that gift again and again. Or, or, but he can give any of those gifts to any one of us in any situation. Because the, it's not determined by that's my thing. It's by what's needed, what is necessary, what is helpful. We'll come back to that again later on. As the Holy Spirit gives those gifts, they are not for our status or our blessing. They're for the help of others. Therefore, the common good. So Paul now goes on to develop this thought of every person contributing to the good of others as they're led and equipped by the Holy Spirit by teaching us about the body of Christ. Starting to 1 Corinthians 12, picking it up from verse 12. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, you might like to check out for the moment, fingers, toes, yeah, yeah, they're all there. Though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. There is one body. Now alongside this passage in Corinthians 12, uh, Paul writes about the body of Christ to the Ephesians and the Colossians as well. So let me give you some headlines, adding together those scriptures. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus' personal physical body went to the cross, was laid in a tomb, was raised from the dead, is now seated in heavenly splendor with massive authority. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. He reigns as sovereign king in his physical being. But his church is his body in a kind of non-tangible way. It's made up of all of these Christians all over the world, but that his church is his body. We could use the word mystical. Of course, there's a physical reality. I'm a physical being and part of a physical local church, you know, a group of people. But yet, you know, we can't measure the body of Christ by what we can see, the people we know. We mustn't imagine we're the only Christians on planet Earth. Some do, you know. There's a joke about someone goes to heaven and he can hear all the singing over here. And he can hear some singing in a corner behind a, behind a fence. He said, who are they? He says, that's the Pentecostals. They think they're the only ones here. We mustn't imagine we're the only people who are saved. We're the only people who are serving Christ. His body is immense. It's huge. It's international. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the saviour of the body. He's not just my personal saviour. There's a big emphasis on personal Christianity. But he's the saviour of the church. of The whole thing. The whole people of God. He's the head of the body. He rules it. In the same way that this brain and head of mine says, feet walk, and they do it, right? Unless you've got a disease. Get up. Well, I'm tired, says my body. Get up, body. You know, your brain, your mind, your head has charge. If you allow your, your bits of your body to start tell your head what to do, you're in trouble. Jesus is the head of the body. He has the authority. 
And the body is one. We just read it in, in, in Corinthians. We read it again in Colossians and in Ephesians. There is not a Jewish people of God and a Gentile people of God. There is one people of God. Yeah. It is the church of Jesus, the Messiah. That's the Jewish word, folks. Christ is the Greek one. The people of Messiah are one. There isn't a, an Anglican church and a Pentecostal church. There are in terms of denominations and groupings. But in Christ, there is one people of God, and it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. One international, multiple, varied, diverse people of God found in every planet, every, just about every nation under earth, on the earth. The body is one. We are members of the body of Christ. We have a place we have partnership. We participate in the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 5, and so on, all tell us the same thing. The body grows not just as someone does a good job leading. That's Jesus. He does the best job leading. But as every member plays their part, as every member in the body participates for the common good, the body grows exponentially. The key to the impact of the church is not a few more good leaders. It's every member playing their part. That's what the scripture says. And we read that we are baptized into the one body, which includes Gentiles, one Israel of God. Now, you don't remember when you were baptized into the body of Christ, though, though it did happen when you were converted and when the Holy Spirit first came to work in you. But you, weren't, you didn't say, oh, I've become a Christian. I've just been baptized into the body of Christ. It wasn't the first thought in your head, was it? You only learn about that later. But you see, Romans, the big patches of Romans are telling you about the things that happened to you when you became a Christian, but you weren't aware of at the time. You're still figuring them out. You're still having to be told what the truth is so you can move into the truth and live in the truth. This is one of the things that is true, but you need to learn it. That you are baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit through your conversion. We're immersed into the body. Baptized is immersed. We are immersed into the body of Christ. It's not like, I'll choose whether to be part of the church or not. No, you were put into the church of Christ when you were converted. The Holy Spirit did that. He made you a member of the body of Christ. But the second thing that Scripture says there is we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now, drinking of the Spirit is something you will remember. It's an experience. You will know when the Holy Spirit came upon you, when you received Him, when you were filled with Him. The experience of being filled with the Spirit or receiving the Spirit for the first time. Now, the minute we say that, we've got a problem because... Our problem with statements like this in Desmond is that is not the experience of everyone today. But the experience of everyone today is not what the experience was then for them. Paul wrote to people who every single one of them had had an experience of encounter with the Holy Spirit. So when he talks about they'd all drunk of one spirit, they knew what he meant. Because it was true for every one of them. To them, this statement would make complete sense would need no further explanation, but when we're dealing today with people who haven't experienced anything of that, that, that impact of the Spirit, that encounter with the Holy Spirit, we start to pull these things apart. More now on the body of Christ. The body is not one member, but many. And the foot says, 
if the food says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, you know, let's, let's translate that. I don't count, I don't matter, I'm not important. Get it? It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. God has made us what we are and placed us in his body as he intended. So we don't need to be jealous, we don't need to be fearful, and we don't need to be competitive. Because he designed us to be what we are and to do what we do. If all were one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I've no need of you. And the head to the feet, I've no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honourable, on these we bestow more honour, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has composed the body, giving more abundant honour to the member that lacked. So that there may be no division in the body. I need you. I'm over here. But that the members may have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. I tell you what, if I've bashed my thumb, the rest of my body doesn't often know it. You say, well, it's only that. Now, if one member suffers, all suffer with it, or should do in the body of Christ. And if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. In Romans, Paul puts that as rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. One body, different members. The body matters far more than my ministry. That's why I have no time, not one scrap of time, for people's ministries that don't build up the body of Christ, that don't build up local churches, that are about him or her doing their thing on a roadshow, hiring their halls, doing their thing. I don't have a minute's time for that. I'm not interested. The body matters far more than some individual's ministry. The one man or big man or big woman even ministry is entirely foreign to this word picture of the body of Christ where every member supplies and receives the grace of God through their serving, through their leading or sharing or working or whatever together by the Spirit. Every Christian, biblically, is not only a priest, but also a servant, a minister, that's the word, of the Lord. 
You say, what are Christian leaders then? We are administers, overseers, to encourage and train and release others to do what God's called them to do. And let me say here that while much of what Paul is writing about may be within the church, the body of Christ represents Christ, Jesus, to the world. And there are perhaps more Christians whose main service to the Lord is outside of the church or from the church rather than within the church. God help us if every bit of effort is consumed on the church being the church. The church needs to be the salt and light of Christ to the world. Yeah? Let's move on. Verse 27. Now you are Christ's body. Not you need to be. You, you need to decide to be. You are. Because the Holy Spirit, remember, baptized you into the body of Christ. You didn't know it. You didn't feel it. But you now know it. And the and we are individually members of the body. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. It's not a full list, is it? It's not an exhaustive list. He's just saying different kinds of people doing different kinds of things. Some are more prominent than others. Some have more kind of, you know, attention than others, but they're different gifts, different measures. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Sorry, I've gone back a bit. I left a scripture out, that's why. I should have said all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not miracle workers of miracles, are they? Then it's gifts of feelings and speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And yet, King James, show you a still more excellent way. We're not all the same. We do not all have the same abilities. We're not all given the same things by the Holy Spirit from time to time. Because God is glorified by unity in diversity. By different people having different skills, bringing different things, but working together as one family of God. Think of an orchestra, so many different instruments, yet playing a symphony with different musicians stepping in and out to make their contribution at particular moments. You know, there's a guy holding the, holding the, the, the big cymbals, you know, and it's like almost the whole symphony, and then bang! He's, he's done the right thing at the right time when it was needed. The biblical picture here is not of a symphony, it's of a, of a, a symphony orchestra, it's of a body which grows as every member contributes at the appropriate time to the common good. And they do that having the same care one for another. We're clearly not all apostles or prophets, or teachers, or workers of miracles. Though many aspire to be those who aren't. Yeah? We're not all called to administrators or overseers. We do not all receive gifts of healings. We don't all speak out in tongues, or interpret tongues. But some are given these things to do so from time to time, and we're all members of the one body, and have a place and part to take in God's wise and diverse commonwealth. What is it to earnestly desire the greater gifts I'll tell you very simply, it's to ask and to trust the Holy Spirit for whatever would be most helpful at that particular moment in time. 
for the good of a, particular, of a person, one individual or a group of people, a fellowship meeting together at that particular time, small group, Sunday morning, whichever, whichever, wherever that is, or of a situation, a corporate you know, situation, in terms of leadership, sometimes leaders need the help of the Holy Spirit away from the public meeting. They need to hear of God about something yeah. that helps to steer, that gives direction. Mm-hmm. So whether it's corporate, the body, or personal one member, these gifts, including you know, the gifts of being an apostle or a prophet, are for the blessing and help of others. They're not for self-absorption, self-edification, you know, self-aggrandizement, They're attracting all the attention and even all the finance to me. They're not given for that purpose. I said last week, got ahead of myself. I made this in my notes for this week. But I have known, on at least one occasion, all of those gifts of the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that because that's my report card. That's, that's, that, that's, my, that's my, my score sheet. I'm saying this, that in different situations, when I was sitting there or standing there, and I thought, Lord, please help us. What do, we, what, you know, what, what, what do we do here? What do we say here? That you know, a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or some, or, or you know, someone's needed healing, and I'm like, well, well, Lord Jesus, please, I mean, I, I, they need to be. The Lord has stepped in and done something. We are to earnestly desire such gifts from the Holy Spirit at such times. Whatever would be most necessary at that time is the best gift at that time, isn't it? So if someone's sick, we should earnestly desire their healing. In fact, pray in such a way that we're looking for God to put faith in us to go and actually pray for their healing. So we step over the boundary of, Lord, would you go and do so and so? We go and do, do it. Jesus sent out his disciples to heal the sick. Now you only do that when you know that God's given you something to give away. Okay, beautiful, lame man. Give me arms, give me, give me, give me, give me you know, um, I'm begging. Uh, I, we're not gonna, we haven't got any money, but what we have, we'll give you. What, what do you mean, what they have? Well, they, at that moment, they had faith to see that man healed. The Holy Spirit put it in them. He, he put the kind of surge of faith to say, why don't you call this man into healing? Why don't you lay hands on him? Why don't you pray over him? Why don't you just tell him to stand up and walk? Which is what they did. They didn't go planning to do that. It just came to them in that moment. We should do this. We, we should do this for this man. So they did. The man walked. To earnestly desire the greater gifts. If someone is demonized, we should be earnestly desire their deliverance. If someone is damned, we should earnestly desire some prophetic word to encourage them. If there are hungry mouths to be fed or bills to be paid, we need faith for God's miraculous supply. It's whatever's most necessary, whatever would be most helpful. That's the greatest gift at a particular moment in time. And in this, we are seeking these things together seeking God's grace and his gifts by the Spirit and, and even using the gifts that he's put in us in our character and our makeup for the good of one another. Paul has developed this vision of many members in one body serving one another and together impacting the world. But next he drives to the very heart of the matter, to our hearts. What is the more excellent way? There's yet an even more excellent way than seeking for the appropriate and best gift at the right time. There's a more excellent way, there's a deeper way, there's a more profound way. There's one that goes to the very heart of the matter. The more excellent way 
is the chapter we know as 1 Corinthians 13. It's the chapter that often gets read out at weddings, and I'm going to be really brutal and say I don't know why it's read out at weddings, because it's nothing to do with weddings. I looked for some images of 1 Corinthians 13 yesterday, and they nearly all had hearts and flowers. This chapter, my friends, is nothing to do with hearts and flowers. It's nothing to do with romance. It's nothing to do with Christian marriage, except in a sense. This chapter sets out that the one real motive for doing anything for anybody is love. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, and it's the highest love, it's agape love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're just a noise. If I have the gift of, isn't there in the original, if I have prophecy, I'm prophesying, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I'm worthless. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, this is acts of charity now, yes? Mercy. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned in martyrdom, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Speaking in tongues or prophesying or showing mercy or even being martyred are worthless, empty, without love. Now this passage is full of hyperbole, meaning exaggerated speech. Jesus used exaggerated speech. He didn't literally want you to cut off your hand or cut off your foot or pluck out your eye. But he's saying you need to be serious enough and radical enough that, you know, we're heading that way. Yeah. Therefore, I, I, I'm not convinced we do speak with the tongues of angels. I think that's a, an exaggeration. In Acts 2, the tongues that were unknown to the speakers were known to some of the hearers. They were human languages. I myself have heard people speak in French and German dialects. Uh, following some of the words, I've heard someone interpret the utterance, and that has indeed given the sense of what was being said. There are reported incidents of people hearing their language in some meeting, Mandarin, um, Southeast Ireland, of the Pacific, all sorts of places. It happens time after time. Tongues are at times signs to a hearer that God is present and real. The evidence of Scripture points the languages to tongues being human languages, I would suggest. I think Paul's just pushing the boat out there saying angels. What does the Paul the Apostle mean by love? Before you go, well, I, I really love this person. I really feel love. You're mistaking, you're mistaking feelings and romance again. Right? What does he mean by love? Here it comes. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag. And is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Inappropriately. You could put that. It does not seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It says in the King James. You might want to let yourself off a bit by easily. But it just says it is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Did you hear about so and so? 
but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's no hearts and flowers in that, is there? It's not about romance, is it? You can't write that on your Valentine card. Well, you might, but don't. Love here is about character. It's about choices and actions rather than feelings. Love which is seen and shown in attitudes and actions. Love is choosing humility, choosing to serve, choosing to give, choosing to to act at your own cost, even to the point of sacrifice. That is love. Love is choosing how you react and respond to others. Love is choosing to serve others, not yourself. These scriptures have nothing to do with romance and falling in love. Notice what is said of this character. Patient, kind, not jealous, doesn't brag, isn't arrogant, doesn't act inappropriately, doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffer, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Would you say that character is godly? Would you say that it's generous? Would you say that it's gracious? I'll tell you something else. It's Jesus. It's Christ-like. That's what that is. It's Christ-like character. Sometimes we've been told that some ministry person who behaves rudely or has fallen short in character and behavior or moral behavior, that we should allow it because of the anointing. Scripture does not say that. In fact, what Scripture teaches us uniformly is this. Character is far more important than charisma gift. Character is far more important than gift. Charisma, a gift, is God's gracious gift to us for the benefit of others. But character is what we put together and return to him as gratitude, as thanksgiving, as lifestyle, as what he deserves. Gifts, because they are gifts from his grace, don't need to be rewarded. Why would you be rewarded for, you know, it's like me giving you a Christmas present, then you get a reward for being given a present. Like, what, what, where's the reward in having been given something? But character is what you produce through your heart, through your choices, through your lifestyle. Choosing, choosing, choosing again and again things which form your character, that is your gift to God and will be rewarded. Absolutely will be rewarded. Jesus called it fruit. Paul in another place calls it the fruit of the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit helps you to grow in. Well, what about anointing then? As for anointing, the only place in the New Testament where Scripture speaks of our anointing, by the way, I'm not disagreeing with Isaiah 61 applying to us as well as Jesus, by the way. As those who follow Jesus, his anointing to set captives free and bring them to live, that's ours too. But that is every one of us, not some special person. Right? But in 1 John 2, the only place in the New Testament the word anointing is used in that way. And he's writing in the context of our dealing with and combating false teaching and false teachers. John writes this, but you all have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. 
You've been, you are equipped by the Holy Spirit to deal with this nonsense, with this error. In other words, the anointing which you've received from him abides in you and you don't need that anyone teach you, but it's the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and it's true and it's not a lie. Just as it has taught you, you will abide in him, in Jesus. John refers to the Holy Spirit here as the anointing which you've received from him, from the Lord Jesus. He's drawing directly on the teaching of the Lord Jesus about the Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher, our guide. He would lead us into the truth. He would lead us to Jesus, teach us about Jesus, and show us how to live in Jesus. That passage has nothing to do with healing signs, miracles, and wonders, and the road shows that people want to put on nowadays. It's about the Holy Spirit guarding us in Jesus against error that will lead us away from him. It's about the Holy Spirit living and remaining with us as our strengthener, as our advocate, as our teacher, just as Jesus promised. Some people talk a lot about the anointing. I could have been funny and put up pictures and things, but I didn't. And when they talk about greater anointing and new anointing, guess, do you know what's going on? They're competing against one another for your attention and for your money. Oh, we've got a better one than them. Come to our conference. Some of those people are the very ones that the Lord Jesus and his apostles warned us about. And John says the Holy Spirit will help us to discern the error of their ways as we learn and hold firm to the truth. A lot of people talk about faith a lot too, don't they? Let me point you to this scripture. This is a devastating scripture. Galatians 5 verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision, whether a Jew or a Gentile, means anything. Why? Because we're one body in Christ. Yes. That division's gone. Yes. What matters is this. Faith working through love. Amen. If love doesn't motivate the faith, the faith is, we just read it, didn't we? Worthless. What? This big act of faith, this big faith thing going on, and, and the, all of these things. Yes, it's without love, it's worthless. Faith working through love. Not faith at work with hype or slick advertising and boasting and ego and competition. Love. Love for the Lord, love for his children, love for lost people. Such love is the only motive that matters. So we must always value character above charisma. And when people don't, you see, they leave themselves open. Oh, it doesn't matter if I get into a bit of this and I do a bit of that because the Lord's still, still anointing me. Yes, he did that with Samson until one day it all went. And he was brought down and it was the end of him. Why? Because he thought, it's okay, God isn't going to turn this anointing off. God did. Pursuit of character, far more important. And we must value in other people, in different Christian leaders, whoever they are, character above the gift. 1 Corinthians 13 is a serious call to address our motives and to pursue maturity. To pursue maturity. There's a huge value. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to make the choices and take the actions that that mold our character to be more like him. Let's finish off the chapter. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. 
If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, oh, that's a moment of joy for me to say that, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. In other words, I knew when it was time to grow up. Well, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now... Faith, hope, love, abide, these three. It's clumsy English, isn't it? That's the way it says it. But the greatest of these is love. Not faith. Love. I dealt a few weeks ago with how some have argued from these verses that all the miraculous work, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit ended with the first generation of the church. But I disagree with that. I can't, you can't argue that from the scripture because the perfect final redemption, resurrection, the eternal kingdom of Jesus has still not yet come. We still only prophesy in part. We still only know in part. We still see in a mirror darkly or dimly and not face to face. All right? We still therefore need the equipping presence and power of God, the Holy Spirit, as well as his teaching and his guidance. I do not believe the Spirit was given in full measure to the early church and then withdrew somewhat when they, when they all died out. He's with us to the end of the age. That is how Jesus fulfills his promise that he will not leave us until the end of the age. He gave us the Holy Spirit to fulfill that promise. He will be with you, and I believe fully, without any withdrawal, without any diminishing of his work, to the end of the age. And I tell you what, we live in a century which is getting more and more like the first century. In its upheaval, in its immorality, in its, in, 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 in its wickedness, in its brokenness, in terms of society and all this. If we don't need the Holy Spirit, I don't know who on earth does. But in the end, all our knowledge, words and deeds will come to an end. And when we face the Lord Jesus, we will reward, be rewarded not so much for what we did, but why we did it. He will reward character. Remember Jesus' parables, talking about stewardship? What was he said to the people? Well done, good and faithful servant. You need to mark those words. He's commending the person's character, which was seen in their actions. Not ability, character. He gave different measures. To one he gave one, to one, another one five, to another one ten. Different measures. We have different measures. But God will reward your character for making the most of whatever he gave you. Using it to serve others with love, with care. Character, motives and maturity. Faith, hope and love. Our motives matter. And since in the end it's God rewards character, not gift, charisma, which is his gift anyway, we're called to review and adjust our motives and pursue faith, hope, and love. Not just for me, but for my friends. 
for others. I'm concerned for their faith, for their hope, for their love. I'm concerned for their growth in maturity as well. Pursuing it together, having the same care one for another. Having an idea that I care as much about you as I care about myself. At least as much. In fact, Paul goes further and says, have a, have a, have a greater uh, interest in others than in yourself. What is it to love your neighbours yourself, to be as willing to do them good as to do you good? But our society says you've got to take after, look after number one, you know. Uh, since when did you become number one? Isn't God number one? You see how wicked some of these things are? They get in there, they stick there, because you've been told them and told them and told them. You are not number one. God is number one. Love, love, love. Not romance, not even married love, not even parenting love. This incredible self-sacrificing, giving, generous, willing to serve, willing to... To, to, to go the extra mile, willing to do something that really cost me for the good of others. Where does that love come from? That love comes from God. God so loved the world, he gave his son. In fact, he gave him up to the cross. It matters because love is one of the essential attributes of God. God is committed to our greatest good. Therefore, he hates everything that spoils and defiles and damages us. He hates sin and evil. I'm explaining to you why he hates it. Because he desires our greater good. Our growth in godly character to become more like Jesus. When we learn to love each other the same way, seeking one another's greater good, even at our own cost, God is glorified and rejoices in us and will reward us. God's gifts in us and through us are tools to serve his purpose of bringing his children and his church to maturity in faith and hope and love. Gifts and operations, the Holy Spirit, are not for our entertainment, they're for our edification and equipping. And Paul is not saying, ditch the gifts and go after love. He's saying, use the gifts to help you to pursue love, to serve others. Adjust your motives. Seek to serve and help fellow members in the body of Christ to grow to maturity. A true work of the Spirit on Jesus is faithful to God's words and helps us to grow in the grace of God. Here, to finish, before we break bread, watching the time. It's how Peter sums this up. I'm going to let him have the last word. Good old Peter. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a gift, which is charisma, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold, diverse, hugely varied grace of God. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. The way you do it is showing grace. Whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God 
supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, your word searches our hearts that even when we might desire some, some gift, we realize we need to desire for the right reason, which is that we might serve our brothers, our sisters in love. And we thank you that you will be good to your promise and you will reward every good act done for the right motives. You will reward you will reward. You mark our ways. But Lord, we hear this, this word today to press on to maturity, to press on after things that really matter in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters. Faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. So we want to be open to you, Father. But through the Holy Spirit, you'll give us whatever we need to better serve, to help and support and encourage and supply our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And then as we learn how to be like that and conduct ourselves like that, we spill out, as the first Christians did, beyond the fellowship into an unbelieving world and just do the same things all over again. Salt and light bringing grace and truth, not just in words, but in deeds. Help us as we continue to think through how to make our building more of an open door to serve people from here. But give us, more than anything else, the right heart before we do anything else. Give us the, the sense that we are stirred in our hearts, as Paul would say, in our guts by the compassion of God. And we will be equipped by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. It's your work, Lord. We simply cooperate with you. You always have more that you want to do and better and greater things that you want to do than we are even willing to imagine. We open our hearts to you. We open ourselves to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit and equipped for every good word and work fresh equipping for fresh challenges day after day. May none of us, Lord, learn how to run an empty and treat that as a way of life. But every one of us have an increasing sense of our need and dependence upon your supply, your grace, your spirit, your energy, your life. In Jesus' name, amen.